The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello and welcome to this series of physical attraction shows on SoftBank's Blurry Vision. This is part five. I came up with a couple of titles for this. Uh, The Snake That Eats Its Own Tail or The Next Financial Crisis. So we'll see which one I settle on by the time it actually gets released. In the last few episodes, we've talked about SoftBank's $100 billion vision fund, which has ploughed money into various different companies. A few of those companies have had a decent business model and one or two have actually been very successful. But most of them are essentially bad ideas or poor business models or simply just badly run businesses that are massively overinflated in value by making vague claims of being technology companies, despite the fact that there's not really a great deal of technology involved in what they do. So far, so Emperor's New Clothes. But in a couple of the fintech, financial tech offerings that SoftBank has invested in, which again also have some interesting business models, there's a hint of something that could be even darker than this sort of misrepresentation of what a company does. So the first of these companies I want to discuss is a company called Greensill Capital. Now, I need to acknowledge that this owes an awful lot of debt to uh, the Amazing Trash Future podcast when they did their in-depth series on Greensill Capital, and that was when I first became aware of it. And they've actually been mocking some of the startups that SoftBank has been pouring VC into for a number of years as part of their podcast central thesis. That thesis, by the way, increasingly being proved correct is that there's a pretty large part of the tech industry that's essentially just people either selling stupid ideas at inflated valuations using tech buzzwords like machine learning, or that the actual innovation that many of these companies offer to their shareholders is not really so much the technology that they have, but their ability to circumvent regulations and cut corners when it comes to employees' rights. And of course, we've seen this when we've talked about hallmarks of some of the companies that SoftBank has invested in beforehand, such as Uber's model of having independent contractors instead of employees, which lets them circumvent many of their rights. And Trash Future, again, they also owe some of what they found out to reporting that's originally in the Financial Times. So again, none of this is a news story or breaking news. I don't really do that here. I'm just bringing it to you because I've been obsessed about this stuff for a while, thanks to the reporting of others, and I want to bring it to a slightly wider audience. So to Greensill, who have received $1.9 billion in funding from SoftBank. Now, this is from their website. What do Greensill actually do? They say, quote, Greensill is the market leading provider of working capital finance for businesses and people globally. We unlock capital so the world can put it to work. Founded in 2011 by Lex Greensill, the company is headquartered in London with offices in New York, Chicago, Miami, Frankfurt, Bremen and Sydney. Greensill provides supply chain finance to customers around the world. The company has extended more than $150 billion of financing to 8 million plus customers and suppliers in more than 175 countries in the nine years since it began. 
We own Greensill Bank and created the world's first supply chain finance fund. No other bank or financial service company has our passion and expertise. Before forming Greensill, Lex established and led Morgan Stanley's global supply chain finance team and successfully developed supply chain finance practices for Citibank. He was awarded the CBE for services to the British economy in Queen Elizabeth II's 2017 birthday honours. So after reading this, you're probably none the wiser. What is supply chain finance? Obviously, it seems to be very important because Greensill is making a lot of money out of doing it and doing it all over the world. But uh, what does that mean? And for that matter, what are services to the economy? Sounds very vague. Greensill, by the way, is pretty tight with the British government. It's involved with some contracts that are associated with the NHS responding to the coronavirus crisis, as well as the CBE for its founder for services to the economy. And one of the advisors on its board of directors, incidentally, is former British Prime Minister David Cameron. What exactly then does Greensill do? Why is it a tech company? Why are SoftBank involved in their vision fund that's supposed to be developing robots and AI and all this sort of thing? And if its job is extending lines of credit to people or providing finance to businesses and people, how is it a company and what makes it any different from a bank? These are all good questions. To get into a little more detail then, we need to explain what supply chain financing is and what reverse factoring is. Obviously all of this stuff is wrapped up in as many confusing buzzwords as possible, essentially to conceal what's really going on to insiders and to make it sound more sophisticated than it actually is. The more buzzwords, the better, as we have found with many other companies that SoftBank has invested in in the past. So let's explain this then. Imagine you're a company that manufactures something, pencils say. In its simplest terms, you have a balance sheet and you have a supply chain. You're, you're in fact part of a supply chain. You have people who supply stuff to you, the wood and the graphite to make the pencils, and you also have people that you supply to who order your pencils. Now that means, of course, that you have some debts that you owe for buying the raw materials and some debts that are owed to you for selling the pencils, and all of these need to be paid off on different dates. So, you know, a company's managing its books will, will look a lot like this in terms of a supply chain. Uh, expenses, income, pretty basic stuff. Let's say that I'm owed $100 by another company that's bought my pencils, and they're going to pay up two months from now. What supply chain financiers allow you to do is to get paid now, but in exchange for less money. They are intermediaries who might come in and say, okay, that person owes you $100. I'm going to buy that money owed off you. I'll pay $98 up front. When they pay that money, they'll pay me the $100 instead. Greensill therefore makes that $2 in profit in exchange for waiting for the money to be fully matured. So you can think of supply chain finance then as allowing you to cash in debts that are owed to you earlier for less money. And you can see the advantages for a particular company to be involved in supply chain financing. If you're owed a load of money from a load of contracts that haven't gone through yet, and your rent is due tomorrow, then someone who can come along and give you the money when you need it is clearly going to be helpful for your business. Maybe you avoid having to take out a loan just to pay rent, or maybe you avoid even being unable to pay that money, or you avoid some interest payments or whatever it might be. So you can see that it's not entirely dissimilar to something a bit like a payday lender, where for example, if you need to pay your rent straight away, perhaps you loan money from them for a little bit of time. So you're effectively exchanging a small amount of money for the timeliness of the payment that you're getting. Now, there is nothing inherently wrong with this as a financial service. And indeed, if you listen to Lex Greensill, 
he's doing a great public service. He's keen to emphasise how he was inspired to open this company based on seeing his father's farm and other similar agricultural businesses struggle to pay their bills on time, even though they were owed money. So you can sort of view the role of Greensill as letting things slide along a little bit easier, giving people access to finance when they need it, taking on some of their debts and taking on some of their obligations for them, and essentially allowing the companies to operate. And of course, they make a profit into the bargain, but they're still providing a service. That's the argument. Now, this whole argument that he's here working for the little guy and the farmers and so on might seem a little bit odds when this is a guy who worked at Citibank and JP Morgan and so on, doing similar things for years. And when we know that banks, and indeed Greensill, are not exactly charitable organisations who exist to help people pay their bills on time, even though they are notorious for selling themselves in that way. But obviously there is an aspect to this which is exploitative, which is effectively that Greensill is making money out of businesses that are having trouble paying their debts on time. They're making money out of businesses that are having persistent trouble paying their bills by skimming them off the top a little bit. If you had good reserves of cash lying around, you'd be able to pay that rent regardless of whether people owe you money or not. Instead, what managing all your invoices through Greensill does, which is what they want you to do, is encourage you to get slightly milked for cash every time someone owes them money. And it can also encourage people to keep their companies going when they're technically insolvent and can't afford to pay their bills, by essentially extending a short-term line of credit to the company, which can convert debts that are owed to it into ready cash, even if they can't technically afford to pay for their bills. So you can see that, again, the payday lender analogy is somewhat similar here, right? Because in the case of a payday lender, they say, oh, what happens if you need to spend a little bit of money? But your payday's on Friday and you need to spend it on Wednesday. We'll bridge the gap for you. You won't pay us that much because you'll pay the loan back straight away. And, you know, we've provided a service to you. But of course, what can happen with payday lenders is people loan the money, quite substantial amounts of money that they can't pay back in the short term. And then the massive interest rates kick in. And that's what really hurts those people when they go to the payday lenders. And if you're stuck on this cycle of dependency on the payday lender, then everything is obviously costing you more because, you know, if you had the money to hand, you could pay your debt straight away and you wouldn't need to pay anyone any interest. But there are some companies that appear to have been caught in, in traps associated with this supply chain financing, which are not dissimilar to the kind of traps you might be caught in if you were buying from a payday lender. And this can lead to some pretty creative accounting at some of these companies. And of course, what it further encourages people in your supply chain to do is to set silly terms about when they're going to pay you. So what a lot of companies have done is extended the terms of their invoices. In other words, they're sort of working with Greensill. They'll say, that $100 I owe you, I'll pay you that in a year, two years, six months. Or you can take the Greensill option and get $98 now. This is from the Sydney Morning Herald. They say, quote, in Australia, Greensill has faced press criticism amid concerns that some of its clients, most recently CMIX UGL business, have been pushing out payment terms beyond the acceptable 30-day limits and forcing any supplier who wishes to be paid earlier to pay fees or accept discounts. Greensill has many successful big-name clients, including Telstra, Vodafone and Airbus, but it has also provided supply chain finance to less successful groups. One of its recently collapsed clients is scandal-plagued London-listed hospital operator NMC Health, which called in administrators last month. Another client of Greensill, controversial rent-to-buy retailer Brighthouse, also entered into administration in late March. The group also provided financing to Singapore commodities trader Agritade, which collapsed amidst fraud allegations from its lenders. Now, the issue is not localised to Australia either. 
Now, if you're not in the UK, and I know that many people aren't, you may not have heard of the company Carillion, unless of course you're British. The UK construction and facilities management company collapsed in 2018, somehow getting into a position where it had an £8 billion black hole on its books. The fallout led to thousands of jobs being lost in the UK and thousands of small businesses losing money that Carillion owed to them. Concerns about Carillion and its extensive use of reverse factoring in supply chain finance, the same financial service that's offered by Greensill, were first raised in 2015. This is from the Wikipedia page. Quote, the liquidation announcement had an immediate impact on 30,000 subcontractors and suppliers, Carillion employees, apprentices and pensioners, plus shareholders, lenders, joint venture partners and customers in the UK, Canada and other countries. Subcontractors were said to be vulnerable. The Specialing Engineer Contractors Group said Carillion's failure could lead to many smaller firms going under. Up to 30,000 small businesses were reportedly owed money by Carillion, who used delay tactics and withheld payments to suppliers, sometimes for up to 120 days. So you can see this sort of similar creative accounting, keeping the firm going when it's not actually solvent through the use of extensive supply chain financing uh, to kind of keep the lights on, even though the company itself is, is technically under. Yet despite the fact that Carillion was in an increasingly shaky position, despite the UK government awarding £2 billion of contracts to Carillion over the years after these concerns were first raised in 2015, it took another three years for it to finally fall apart. When it did, things were so bad that the company had to be liquidated completely, rather than going into administration, which is what financially distressed companies usually do. The whole thing was a massive disaster that led to many parliamentary inquiries, and there was a general consensus that the use of reverse factoring, the service that Greensill is now a multi-billion dollar company for providing, was part of what allowed it to get in such an awful state. Quoting from a recent Financial Times piece on Greensill, quote, Supply chain finance polarises opinion, however, specifically at a time of growing financial strain due to the coronavirus crisis. Proponents stated it could help reduce damage to little manufacturers during this interruption, while experts argued it can hide dangers on businesses' balance sheets. Rating agency S&P in March warned that supply chain finance can be held concealed from people and used to mask a far more fundamental deterioration in an organisation's monetary health. Before its demise, construction group Carillion made hefty utilisation of the UK governing body's supply chain finance programming that Mr Greensill helped to develop. MPs examining Carillion's 2018 failure stated that the scheme permitted it to prop up its failing business design. Mr Greensill informed the financial authorities last week that he thinks rating agencies should think about credit given by vendors to be an economic liability. Supply chain finance was central to revelations of vast amounts of hidden debts and potentially deceptive transactions at NMC Wellness, which in four months tumbled from a FTSE 100 business to close to collapse in one of the worst governance scandals to hit the London stock market. End quote. So there's this risk that even in the sort of the standard and pause and other mainstream analysts of this kind of thing are, are noticing is that Greensill can allow companies that are effectively zombified and incapable of paying their operating expenditures to continue going for longer than they should by cashing in invoices owed to them early. Greensill's business model can encourage people to stiff others in their supply chain by pushing out the terms of their payment for months, forcing people to get less money than they're owed if they want to have it in any kind of reasonable time. And obviously, in a world we're living in now, the post-COVID world, Greensill essentially leeches onto companies that are struggling to pay their bills, companies which are forced to accept $98 today rather than 100 in a few weeks because it would cause them to go bust. So it's intrinsically quite exploitative, because the only reason you're accepting their terms is because you don't feel like you have a choice. But it may well get quite a lot worse than this. Because of course you're wondering now, how is it that Greensill always has the money to pay these people in the supply chain? 
Greensill is almost behaving like a bank in that it's issuing loans to people, but it's not actually a bank. Banks, under regulations like the Dodd-Frank Act, have to have a certain amount of actual cash in reserve. They can't just issue infinite loans to people without having the assets to necessarily back them up. This is aimed to prevent the kind of financial shenanigans that caused the global financial crisis in 2009. But by branding itself as a financial tech company, Greensill is avoiding being beholden to a lot of these regulations. And the companies that we mentioned above might be mad about how this is working. They, they can't pursue Greensill through the same channels because it's not a bank. How does Greensill get a hold of its money then? Well, this is where the real concern can lie. Remember that Greensill is buying up people's debts, so that $100 you owe me is now owed to Greensill instead. But Greensill itself doesn't keep a hold of these debts. Instead, it turns them into a financial instrument, a bond. So a bond is basically just an asset that will pay out at a certain interest rate after a certain time. So you can see quite easily how a loan can be turned into a bond. You owe me $100, Greensill pays me $98 and I transfer the debt to them. Greensill turns that debt into a bond, which it sells to someone else for $98. When the money is paid, Greensill gets $100. They pay the bondholder $99 now that the bond has matured, and they keep the $1 for themselves. That's basically the operation principle here. In other words, providing it all works out, everyone kind of wins. It's the arbitrage between who wants and needs money now, and who is happy to take it later, that allows this sort of system to operate. But by turning supply chain finances and debts in the ordinary supply chain of companies into bonds, these debts become listed as assets. Now there are a couple of problems here, and one of them relates to the problems that we've identified earlier with Greensill. Because the problem is you can potentially change debts you owe in your supply chain into assets. You can buy bonds that are effectively debts you owe to people in your supply chain. So via a kind of circular financing, in a weird, loose, incestuous way, with Greensill as the intermediaries, you can owe yourself money. And this makes your balance sheet look a lot better, because things that would usually be listed as debts that you owe are now actually listed as assets as well on both sides of the balance sheet. So you're converting the sort of operating expenditures that you're going into into permanent uh, debts and liabilities that you might have on different terms. And this can make the company look more stable than it actually is. What kind of company would have that sort of arrangement? Well, allegedly, and to make it clear, this is all alleged at the moment, according to reporting from the Financial Times, this is exactly what many SoftBank businesses have been doing. This is all from the article. Quote, SoftBank has reportedly invested over $500 million into Credit Suisse investment funds that made large bets on startups backed by the Japanese tech investment giant's vision fund. SoftBank invested in the Swiss lender's $7.5 billion range of supply chain finance funds, the Financial Times reported, citing three people familiar with the matter. The funds are marketed by Credit Suisse to professional investors. Marketing documents sent to investors show that the funds have increased their exposure to several startups banked by SoftBank's $100 billion vision fund over the past year. Four of the ten largest investments in Credit Suisse's main supply chain finance fund were vision fund companies at the end of March, the paper reported, accounting for 15% of its $5.2 billion assets. These included hotel chain Oyo, which has started to retreat from a rapid global expansion as coronavirus hammers the hospitality industry, and car subscription startup Fair, which cut 50% of its staff last year. Fair was also the second largest investment in Credit Suisse's high-income supply chain finance fund at the end of last year, the FT reported. 
Reports of the investment come at a challenging time for SoftBank, which warned last month that it may not pay a dividend for the first time since its listing in 1994, after an $18 billion hit from the Vision Fund dragged the conglomerate to a record loss. Greensill Capital, a Vision Fund-backed firm specialising in supply chain finance, selects all the assets that go into the Credit Suisse supply chain finance funds under an arrangement dating back to 2017, according to the FT. End quote. So you can see how this arrangement is all frankly quite cosy. SoftBank pumps money into Greensill. Greensill provides a financial service that lets SoftBank companies and SoftBank startups turn their debts into bonds. And then SoftBank companies buy these bonds again. All the while, the companies are making themselves look like better investments by turning debts they owe into assets. But the whole thing is circular. It's a serpent eating its own tail. It appears as if SoftBank is involved at every stage of the transaction here, facilitating a weird circular financing where SoftBank companies pump monies through themselves in an endless cycle. If this was just limited to SoftBank, then obviously it would be a big red flag for anyone invested in that company or any of the startups that it backs to, at the very least, ask them why this arrangement is so important to them. But there is a potential that this thing is going to go even wider than SoftBank and its $100 billion vision fund. Let's think back to the financial crisis in 2008-9. Why is it that a bunch of people not being able to pay their mortgages in the US resulted in a global financial meltdown? millions of people around the world being thrown out of work. The reason, of course, was the financialized nature of the global economic system, which caused all of these interconnections between apparently disparate parts of the world economy. These people failing to pay their mortgages didn't just affect the mortgage companies that they owed money to. Instead, these mortgages were bundled up into financial instruments called collateralized debt obligations, or CDOs. If you've seen The Big Short or read any books about how the financial crisis happened, you'll remember all of this. And if you haven't seen The Big Short, go and see it, because it's great. These financial instruments, they become so complicated, so Byzantine, and so over-leveraged that people essentially had no idea what they were buying when they bought these bonds. They just assumed that because the mortgage industry was so reliable, that the bonds were really worth exactly what they were supposed to be worth. When the music stopped, though, no one wanted to be holding any of these CDOs because no one knew how much exposure they had to bad debts that were never going to be paid. In other words, turning dubious debts of unknown origin into assets that you package together and sell works fine until there's some kind of crisis. Then suddenly people all want to sell at once, people have no faith that the bonds are really worth what they claim to be worth, and all of a sudden the whole financial industry is in total meltdown, no one will lend to each other, banks are on the verge of collapsing, and so on. That's what happened in 2008-9. And then, of course, people did regulate the banks, although certain politicians have tried to repeal even these regulations. But of course, if you identify as a tech company instead of a bank, you aren't necessarily going to be bound by the same regulations. We all remember what happened in 2008-9. The banks were seen as too big to fail and to stop the system from collapsing. The central banks printed money in the form of quantitative easing and bought lots of bonds to support these banks and companies. This was money that was supposed to be a loan, but as we discussed in our episodes with Francis Coppola, a vast majority of the money has not actually been paid back at some point, as the balance sheets of the central banks have continued to grow in size. Now, you can argue the fact that no bankers went to prison, or really faced any consequences at all for the failures in 2008, would end up encouraging people to make similar decisions in the future. And unfortunately, it seems like these perverse incentives 
have taken place. In a recent article in The Atlantic called ominously enough The Looming Bank Collapse, the situation is described. Quote, to prevent the next crisis, Congress in 2010 passed the Dodd-Frank Act. Under the new rules, banks were supposed to borrow less, make fewer long-shot bets, and be more transparent about their holdings. The Federal Reserve began conducting stress tests to keep the banks in line. Congress also tried to reform the credit rating agencies, which were widely blamed for enabling the meltdown by giving high marks to dubious CDOs, many of which were loaded with subprime loans given to unqualified borrowers. Over the course of the crisis, more than 13,000 CDO investments that were rated AAA, the highest possible rating, defaulted, i.e. they couldn't pay out what they were supposed to. The reforms were well-intentioned, but as we'll see, they haven't kept the banks from falling back into old man habits. After the housing crisis, subprime CDOs naturally fell out of favour. Demand shifted to a similar, and similarly risky instrument, one that even has a similar name, the CLO, or Collateralised Loan Obligation. A CLO walks and talks like a CDO, but in place of loans made to home buyers are loans made to businesses, specifically trouble businesses. CLOs bundle together so-called leverage loans, the subprime mortgages of the corporate world. These are loans made to companies that have maxed out their borrowing and can no longer sell bonds directly to investors or qualify for a traditional bank loan. There are more than $1 trillion worth of leverage loans currently outstanding, the majority of which are held in CLOs. I was part of the group that structured and sold CDOs and CLOs at Morgan Stanley in the 1990s, says the author of the article in The Atlantic. The two securities are remarkably alike. Like a CDO, a CLO has multiple layers which are sold separately. The bottom layer is the riskiest, the top the safest. If just a few of the loans in a CLO default, the bottom layer will suffer a loss and the other layers will remain safe. If the defaults increase, the bottom layer will lose even more and the pain will start to work its way up the layers. The top layer, however, remains protected. It loses money only after the lower layers have been wiped out. Unless you work in finance, you probably haven't heard of CLOs, but according to many estimates, the CLO market is bigger than the subprime mortgage CDO market was in its heyday. The Bank for International Settlements, which helps central banks pursue financial stability, have estimated the overall size of the CDO market in 2007 at $640 billion. It estimated the CLO market at $750 billion, so $110 billion more in 2018. More than $130 billion more worth of CLOs have been created since then, some even in recent months. Just as easy mortgages fueled economic growth in the 2000s, cheap corporate debt has done so in the past decade, as many companies have binged on it. Despite their obvious resemblance to the villain of the last crash, CLOs have been praised by Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell and Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin for moving the risk of leveraged loans outside the banking system. Like former Fed Chair Alan Greenspan, who downplayed any risks posed by subprime mortgages, Powell and Mnuchin have consistently downplayed any trouble CLOs could pose for the banks, arguing that the risk is contained within the CLOs themselves. These sanguine views are hard to square with reality. The Bank for International Settlements estimates that across the globe, banks held at least $250 billion worth of CLOs at the end of 2018. Last July, one month after Powell declared in a press conference that the risk isn't in the banks, two economists from the Federal Reserve reported that the US depository institutions and their holding companies owed more than $110 billion worth of CLOs issued out of the Cayman Islands alone. A more complete picture is hard to come by, in part because banks have been inconsistent about reporting their CLO holdings. The Financial Stability Board, which monitors the global financial system, warned in December that 14% of CLOs, more than $100 billion worth, are unaccounted for. End quote. The whole article is really worth a read. It's pretty chilling stuff. 
But essentially, when you cut through it all, what we're seeing is that precisely the same conditions that prevailed before the financial crisis, greed, greed, and more greed, obscured by financial jargon, a system that is totally invested in pretending that things are fine for as long as possible, safe in the knowledge that taxpayers will foot the bill, because the risks for these activities always seem to be end up being paid for by ordinary people in some way. And packaging this packaging of loans and debts uh, to distressed companies into bonds and assets and funds made of thousands of different loans in a less than transparent way, this financialization of everything, turning it all into instruments to be traded, bought, sold, repackaged and reissued, this has all been aided and abetted by SoftBank through Greensill and SoftBank's Vision Fund, which appears to be doing it, frankly, for its own purposes. So what's the idea here? What's the innovation? What's the technology breakthrough? I mean, these are all very good questions, because it seems that the innovation is basically to just relabel a lot of dodgy practices that helped lead to the last financial crisis and major global recession. And these kind of things might fly when the market is bullish and everyone's feeling nice and optimistic. It just means that the consequences when it all comes crashing down are that much worse. The COVID-19 pandemic and the global recession is obviously going to mean that a lot of companies are not going to be able to pay back their loans. They'll have trouble paying their bills in the supply chain. They're going to be defaulting left, right and centre. Supply chains are going to collapse. And because suddenly everyone is horribly overexposed to loans that they might not know anything about, banks may very well struggle as well. The consequences of irrational exuberance like this are always, always a worse crash when the crash eventually happens. And I'm afraid that the suspended animation that the economy has been put in by central banks and world governments in this emergency response mode to the COVID-19 pandemic is not going to last, and when the music stops, a lot of this is going to unravel. I mean, the fact that I'm even telling you about it as a lowly student who knows very little of the financial sector is probably enough to tell you that it's already unravelling and I'm afraid that we'll all suffer as a consequence. Except for the people who made the money, of course. Somehow, just as with every silly idea and failing business that SoftBank has invested in, the people directly at the top never had to foot that much of the bill for it. So having discussed how SoftBank's vision fund, you remember the tech fund that was going to save the world, has in part helped recreate the shaky financial conditions that led to the last Great Recession, right before a massive shock to the economy, there's one more SoftBank company that I want to tell you about. Now, initially, I was going to do this as a mainstream episode. Uh, it's actually ended up being quite short, so I'm going to release it as a bonus episode. Uh, the bonus episode people who are subscribed on the Patreon will know that they've received all of this SoftBank stuff early, and they'll only pay for one episode, which is this one. And that is going to be the story of the company that managed to lose $2 billion from its balance sheet, which has apparently just completely gone missing. Um, I'm talking, of course, about one of the largest financial frauds in EU history, uh, the German tech company Wirecard, and yes, SoftBank invested in them too. Until next time then, please take care. And remember, comments, questions, concerns, anything you'd like to hear about, anything you'd like to hear less about or more about, physicspodcast.com, the contact form is there, Twitter, Facebook, you know the drill for all of the things you can do to stay in touch with us. And please do, if you've enjoyed anything about this show, tell as many other people as possible to listen to it. Until next time then, Take care.